um, this morning, God. Thank you for the opportunity to stand here in this building, God. I pray that none of us would take this moment for granted, that we're only here today breathing air because you've allowed us another day. Father, we're here today because of the freedoms we have in our nation. God, we can gather together here in Australia. We can worship you. We can have a building in a prominent place on top of a hill. Father, we can have Bibles in our homes, all these freedoms that we have. And we know that this morning, God, there will be people waking up around the world who don't have those freedoms and they don't have those liberties. So, Father, I pray we would not take for granted what we're doing here this morning, God, but we'd be grateful in our hearts that we live in such a time and such a place as this. And, Father, as we open the Word of God this morning, God, I pray open up the, the eyes of our understanding. Holy Spirit, I pray take what I have to say and interpret it into a language that every person here would understand. And at the end of this, God, I pray that we would be more and more in love with Jesus. In your name. Amen. Something amazing happened in the year 2005. Can anyone tell me what it was? There were several amazing things. What happened in 2005 that was so amazing? We did. We had a pink one. So we had three boys, and we finally got our little girl in 2005. Yes, that's amazing. Okay, stealing my thunder. That's not where I was going with this. But yes, my daughter was born in 2005. It was awesome. Uh, New South Wales also won the state of origin that year. That was awesome. Uh, and I have to say that because I think we've only done it one year since that or twice, something like that. It's been a, been a dry run. But in 2005, a group of young men who donned the black and orange ran out onto a sporting field in round one of the National Rugby League as 150 to 1 odds on favourites to win the grand final that year. For those of you that, that don't gamble, and I'm not a gambler either, but just to let you know, 150 to 1 means that we will confidently give you $150 for $1 if you think they'll win. That's how confident everybody was that the Tigers would not make the grand final that year, let alone win the grand final. They confirmed to everybody that they were perennial failures for the first half of the year. As a matter of fact, come round 12, round 13, the middle of the season, the Tigers were sitting in 13th place on the ladder. That means that there were only like three or four teams beneath them. They were struggling. They were battling. But then something happened. A switch was flicked. A moment in time. And these young men banded together and said, we will not go down quietly. And they went on a winning streak. And the rest is history. In 2005, the West Tigers won the NRL Grand Final. And in case you don't understand the significance of that, I'm a West Tigers supporter. And you know what? I relive that moment time and time again. I have the 2005 season highlights DVD at home. It's a DVD, but it's starting to look crackly like the old VHS tapes. Remember, you used to watch VHS tapes and the quality got less and less. Well, I've got a DVD at home that's gone like that. It's getting less and less and less. But I love that thing. And I go back and I rewatch it because it reminds me of a time when we were wonderful. It reminds me of a time when we were champions, when we were the best team running around. It reminds me of a time when we were almost unbeatable. It also reminds me that it's probably the only time in my entire life I'll ever see that moment happen. Because they had a trial match last night and got whacked again. Every year we start with such high expectations. It doesn't take long for those expectations to be diminished. 2005, the West Tigers won the NRL Grand Final. They were not a team full of superstars. They were actually a whole bunch of ordinary, mostly unknown young men in the rugby league world. There weren't many players in that team that had representative experience or that were on big contracts. 
They were just a bunch of young guys that ran out there, put on a jumper together, and did something amazing together. Sounds a little bit like the early church to me. In the beginning, when Jesus was crucified on that cross, and the church kind of took off, and they're sitting down and they're trying to work this thing out. What's just happened? We poured our life into this Man, we thought this was the way it was going to be. We expected something different, and it didn't happen. And I would imagine that back then at Jerusalem TAB, they probably were 300 to 1 that this little group of people carry on anywhere past the next two years. And 500 to 1 that they make it outside of Jerusalem, and that anyone outside of this city even cares about those people. But here we are in 2019 in Ganelabar, sitting here with hundreds and thousands and millions of other people all around the world, every tribe, nation and tongue, worshipping God because of what that man did and because of the faith and the belief and the passion that those people had to carry that throughout the generations in the midst of persecution and torture and death. It's pretty amazing what the church has become. It's pretty amazing what happened from that tiny, tiny start where Jesus gathered 12 Southern Galilean hillbillies. They were not the elite. They were not the best. They were not the smartest. They were literally Southern Galilean hillbillies, most of them. They were the kind of the backwards people. I can't tell you what suburb we would say are the backwards people because I might have people here from there. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those people that you kind of look at and go, yeah, they're just there. They're just making up their numbers. Yet somehow, from this tiny, tiny group, here we are today. I think that is amazing. I think that is mind-blowing. Whatever nation I've travelled to, places I've been, I can go into a place where we speak a different language, we eat different food, we, we live in different types of accommodation, we do family different, we follow different sports. But they love Jesus just as much as I do. And there's this common denominator, and I just think, wow, isn't that amazing? The Tigers of 05 blew my mind. But the church of today blows my mind even more how far we've come and what we've achieved and what we are doing on planet Earth. Last week I was talking a little bit about, um, uh, about the, the story of our church, and I, I just hinted at a couple of verses from Nehemiah. I just want to quickly throw some verses at you this morning out of the book of Nehemiah. I've got something I want to say to you today. It's not probably something new for you, but God's been speaking to me about going forward. God's been speaking to me about uh, opportunities. I remember at the start of the year, I told you I really believe the word of the Lord to us this year is opportunity. God's going to give us opportunity. And I don't just mean opportunity here in this. I'm expecting everyone here, you're going to get opportunities in, in your educational world if, you, if you're at school. You're going to get op- uh, opportunities in your business world. You're going to get opportunities in your personal world. Things, God's going to begin to give you opportunities, but he won't make you walk into them. It's your choice, your decision. But I do believe that this year, the word of God to us is opportunity. And I want to get to something in a minute that can either open and broaden those opportunities or close it. And I'm sort of building, so stay with me. Book of Nehemiah, chapter 1 and verse 3. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah's brother goes to Jerusalem and comes back with a few people. And here's what he says. And they said to me, the survivors who are left, Nehemiah asks, what's it like back there in Jerusalem, in, 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 in the city? And they said... 
The survivors who were left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The people that are living there are in great distress and reproach. This is the word that Nehemiah hears. And from that point on, something begins to stir in his heart. And he, we all know the story. He goes before the king and the king says, what's going on? Why are you sad? He says, this is what's happening back in Jerusalem. King says, what do you want to do? He says, here's what I want to do. He gets favor with the king and he goes. But in Nehemiah 1.3, we hear that the inhabitants are in great distress and reproach. Nehemiah 2.18 Nehemiah does a walk around the city and then he gathers those people. The people that he gathers together that he's talking to are those who were in reproach and distress. These are the people he's talking to. Those that were in reproach and distress. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also the king's word that he'd spoken to me. So they said, who's who's they? It's those that were distressed and reproached. Those who were distressed and reproached said, let us rise up and build... And then they set their hand to that good work. I mean, I think there's a whole message just in that. That here's this guy, Nehemiah, and he goes to a bunch of people who are reproached and distressed, and he shares with them a vision of what could be. And the people that were living in the ruins, looking around, going, "Is this is, this is what it is. This is now normal. This is as good as it's going to get. we just got to get used to it and get on with our lives. And he comes along, and he gives them a different picture of the future. A future where their walls are rebuilt. A future where they're safe in the city again. A future where they can call back in the the Israelites and they can dwell together and and revive their religious customs and their cultures and their values. I think, wow, that's an amazing analogy of what we've got. You know, we, we live in a world where there's lots of distress and reproach. And you know what? Maybe it's us that can go out there and take a vision to those people in the workplace, in the schoolyard, at the university in the sporting realm, in the scientific realm. Maybe it's us that are meant to go out there and to give them a vision of a life that can be so much better than the life that they have right now, a life where they sit surrounded by crumbled rocks and ruins thinking this is normal, content to live in that. And I think that's a message for the church. We're called to go out and shine our light and be salt in the earth and go, you know what, there's more. Don't be comfortable with the ruins of your life. You actually can find hope. You actually can find peace. You actually can make sense of your life and your existence and you can make sense of death if you'll just come to Jesus, if you'll listen to what God has to say. But the thing that the West Tigers, the thing that the early church and the thing that Nehemiah all have in common is this. They gathered a bunch of people around a common vision or a soul-focused purpose. And when people gather together, for a soul-focused purpose or a common vision, call it whatever you will, when people come together around something focused, it's amazing what they can achieve. It's amazing what they can do. I think one of the biggest problems with the church coming together and achieving something great, and I want you to not shut off to me, I want you to let me go with this a little bit, is that sometimes I think we're too busy trying to find out what is the will of God for my life. Instead of saying, how does my life fit into the will of God? What's the will of God for my life? 
I, I don't want to make any mistakes. I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to be in the wrong place. It's like the will of God for my life is an eye of a needle. And I need to just make sure that I hit that eye of a needle. Because if I'm a bit to the left or a bit to the right, I won't be in the blessing of God and maybe bad things will happen and maybe I won't be happy and I'll be flat and maybe I won't, if I hit the eye of the needle, I'll just all the time feel so fulfilled and buzzing and the birds will sing to me every morning. The sun will shine upon my body alone. But if I get it wrong, you see this, this pursuit of the will of God for my life, if we're not careful... It puts us at the center. What's the will of God for my life? It creates several things. One, I think it can create fear of getting it wrong. We really have a heart to find out what God wants us to do while we're here. Hand up if you really want to know what God wants for you on planet Earth. There's four or five people. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm speaking to you. The rest of you, this is free. I believe you're wrong. I believe you do want to know what the will of God is for your life because I believe that you love God. And I believe you're passionate about him and you know you're here for a reason and you know you're here for a purpose. And we read books on the will of God and how to find the will of God and what is the will of God. And the will of God is this thing that gets thrown out and and the will of God is an excuse why I won't do that. And the will of God is an excuse why I have to do this. I think, I wonder if we got the question wrong. The question shouldn't be, What is the will of God for my life? Maybe the question should be, how does my life fit into the will of God? The subtle difference, but it's different. One puts me at the center, one puts God at the center. One says that this human universe and my existence is really all about my achievements at the end of the day. The other says, no, no, I'm passing through. I'm an alien and stranger and my involvement here is about your achievements on earth. What do you want to do? How many of you noticed this? Maybe you're different to me, but I'm going to throw something out at you. It's wild. It's amazing. I only just realized it myself. I've never thought of it till right now. That book, the Bible, it begins before I was here. Anyone else in that boat? It begins before I was here. Here's the other thing. Guess what? It ends after I'm going to be gone. Anyone else sort of think maybe that's the case? It kind of finishes, unless Jesus comes back, it's going to finish after I'm gone. So I'm neither the beginning of history or the end of history. I'm simply a part of history, and history is his story. It's his story. I think when we get consumed with what's the will of God for my life, fear can grip us because we don't want to get it wrong. So we've got fear of doing something in case it's wrong. There's also a pressure to have to get it right. I don't want to do anything until I know 100%. Can you imagine Peter on the boat? And Jesus says to Jesus, if that's really you, then tell me to come walk to you. He probably didn't do that. But I'm just doing it. If it's you, Jesus, tell me to come, snap. And so Jesus says, come. And so he goes to put his foot out and he goes, oh, hang on a second, wait. If it's really you, Jesus, make a seagull fly over the boat, snap. And a seagull flies over the boat. Right, well, if it's really you, make a whale jump at the back and a whale jumps at the... Well, if it's really you, make this guy say peanut butter sandwich. And James is on the boat next to him just goes... I feel like the Lord's saying peanut butter sandwich. I, 
You're a show off, Jesus. Some of us are like that. We're just waiting for a thousand signs and a thousand things to be ticked. I love the story of Moses. You know, Moses goes uh, into the nation of Israel. He goes into Egypt and we all know the story. He does all these amazing things. God moves through him. But right at the beginning of the Moses story, and I won't turn there now, right at the beginning of the Moses story, when God speaks to Moses, he actually says this. Moses says, how, you know, how am I going to know? You know, and God goes through this, all this stuff. And God says this to him. He says, when you get to the other side of this journey and you stand on the mountain and you worship me, he said, then you will know that I, the Lord your God. You ever read that? Then you'll know. In other words, Moses, you're going to be going on a journey with me, standing in front of Pharaoh. You're going to be throwing down sticks and turning them into snakes. You're going to be doing all these kinds of things. You're going to see rivers turn to blood. You're going to see frogs flying through the air, locusts. It's not going to be any of those things. You're going to still look at those things and you're probably still going to wonder, am I in the will of God? Am I in the will of God? Now, Jesus said, even if you see someone raised from the dead, you're still not going to believe. I mean, there's this, this element about us where we're never 100% certain about anything. And so I can imagine Moses going on that journey and having something inside of him going, well, I'm not sure if I'm in the will of God. But the impressive thing is this, he went on the journey anyway. He went on the journey anyway. When we're so fixed on not on the will of God that we have a fear of, of getting it wrong, we feel the pressure of getting it right. And you know what ends up happening for most of us? We are paralysed into inactivity. And we end up doing nothing for the kingdom of God. And one year turns over to two, turns over to three, turns over to four. You're 20, then you're 30, then you're 40, then you're 50, then you're 60. And you're looking back and you're going, you know what, I still feel as uncertain right now at 60 as I did when I was 20. So if I could go back to being 20 again, I'd probably start doing something. Is it about the will of God for my life or is it about where does my life fit into the will of God? What's the question that we're asking? So I read the Bible and I go, there's a lot of significant people in that book. But were they significant because God stopped the world and created something and said, I I just need this guy. There's a guy called Noah. I just really like him. So I'm going to make something catastrophic happen in human history so he can gain significance. So I'm going to make everybody so evil that I have to flood the world just so I can lift up the name of Noah. Or maybe, just maybe, maybe God so loved the world and and, and wanted to keep humanity alive so badly that he just happened to choose a man called Noah, and say, build a boat and get the animals on. And, and maybe Noah's not the centre of the story. Maybe God is. Maybe God's the centre of the Noah story. The flood story, not Noah. He just happens to be the person through whom God decided to build a boat. When there was a massive famine in the world and Egypt had all the food, I wonder if God sat back and goes, oh, I just love that little kid, Joseph. I really love him. I'm gonna do, how can I raise him to prominence? Why don't we just starve the world? <laughs> yeah, it's a good idea. I'm going to starve the world. I'm gonna start, actually, what I'm going to do is give him a dream first. 
because um, I really want to lift his name up and make him prime. I'm going to give him a dream. I'm going to make him tell his brothers. His brothers are going to think you're a little upstart and they're going to get mad at him. They're going to th- want to kill him, but I'll make sure one of his brothers saves his life and he's just sell him off to a caravan. He can get taken away. I'll make sure that, that he gets accused of, of, of trying to be with another man's wife. I'll make sure he ends up in prison. I'll make sure, make sure, make sure. Because I just want to lift up the name of Joseph. Or maybe God so loved the nation of Israel that he wanted to keep... I mean, I'm just quoting what Joseph had to say, by the way, in Genesis. Maybe God wanted to keep the nation of Israel alive because he had a commitment to them. And in order to do that, he just happened to use a man called Joseph who had a whole bunch of life experiences and happened to be in the right place. Maybe. Maybe the... Maybe the Joseph story is actually about God, not just Joseph. Maybe. Maybe when the Israelites came out of Egypt, and Moses with his staff and everything, and all the miracles and stuff, maybe, just maybe, maybe that story, maybe the centre of that story is actually God, who so loved them that he wanted them out of bondage. He just happened to use a man called Noah, gave him his stick and performed some miracles. But maybe God was the centre of that. So I think sometimes if we're not careful, we put people at the centre as if we are the ones who are writing history. Yet I seem to see this thread that God is actually the author of history. God is the author of history. And he uses people where they are. But if we're constantly questioning where I am, is this the will of God? Is this the will of God, Lord? If I'm constantly questioning whether I'm in, is this the job I'm meant to be in, Lord? Is this the, 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 the house I'm used, meant to be in? Is this the school I'm meant to be going at? Is this the choice? Now, I'm not saying we just flippantly go on, but what I'm saying is this, that I don't think it's so much about what's the will of God for my life. The question is, how does my life fit into the will of God where I am right now? Where you are this week, you're going to leave here and you're going to go to work for the next week. What are you going to do? You're going to wake up every day with a question on your mind, what is the will of God for my life? Open yourself up to the fear that perhaps this week I'm not living in the will of God. Open yourself up to the, to the pressure of going, well, if this isn't it, God, I have to know what it is. And we're so consumed with all this stuff. Meanwhile, God's going, you know what? I've got you in this place right now. This is where you are. You're in my will, and I have a will and a desire in that place right now. I want to do something this week. Now, how does your life fit into that? How does your life fit into what God wants to do this week in the place where you are now? You can live, you can live that other way. You can be, 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 be stressed and consumed with what is the will of God for my life. You can put yourself at the center of the narrative if you want. But I'll guarantee you, it will be fear, it'll be pressure, and most likely, it'll be a life of much inactivity. Or you can just boldly wake up tomorrow morning, go to work, and say, you know what? How does my life fit into the will of God today? Because you know what? I'm in my workplace, and you know what? God is doing more than just me in that place. I am not the only person in my when I, you know, in my workplace or my sporting field or whatever, I'm there like I'm the centerpiece, God. What's... And God's going, well, hang on a second. I've actually got something I want to do here. It's not all about you. Would you stop being consumed with you? Because I'd actually like to do something here. And are you going to let me? Are you going to be available to me or not? Are you going to sit there and resist because you're so consumed with yourself? So consumed with whether this is the will of God? 
I just wonder, and I want to throw that as a challenge out to you. Jeez, great. I love, I love here because I just type all these notes up and I never get to use them. But there's some good stuff on here. I'll tell you, wow, some really good stuff. Um, yeah, well, get to some of that. So how does my life fit into the will of God? And you know what's beautiful about this? It then opens up the question, not the will of God for my life, but what is God's will? What's God's will for human history? And the beautiful thing is he doesn't hide that from us. The Bible's very clear on that. Let me throw a couple of verses at you. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's funny, I don't see myself in there because I'm, I'm saved. I'm saved. But, but, but I'm seeing here a God that desires all men. That means the person at work that bugs the life out of you, the person in your family that's not walking with the Lord that you just don't get on with, you know, they're all. That's what God means when he says all. God desires that all people would come to a saving relationship with him, not through their own works, but through the sacrifice and the blood and the death of Jesus Christ. That's the will of God. That's the will of God. 2 Peter 3, 9, this is one of my favorite verses. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now you go back a few verses, let me give you a bit of insight into what he's talking about. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. You know what the promise is he's talking about? Go back a few verses, you'll find it. It's the promise of his return. Now think about this. Think about this. What he's saying is, God's not slack in not having been here yet. Because people were saying, when's he coming? I mean, it's been... 20, 30, 40, 50 years. When's he coming? We keep hearing he's coming back. When's he coming? I mean, when's he coming? And Peter says this. He says he's not slack concerning that promise. He's coming. But you want to know why he hasn't come yet? I'll tell you why. Because he's long-suffering toward us and he doesn't want anyone to perish. And if he comes back right now, there'll be millions of people who haven't heard yet. If he comes back right now, there are people that you go to school with and work with who maybe haven't had a clear presentation of the good news of Jesus and been challenged that you need to make a response to this. So because of God's huge heart of compassion for humanity, he's not slow. He's going, you know what? I will hold that moment in history back because I love people and I want every person to have every possible chance to come to faith in me. That's the will of God. So now I go to work not going, what's the will of God for my life? Now I go to work knowing the will of God is that nobody here should perish. So how does my life fit into God's will today? How does my life fit into what God wants to do today? It changes the center point of the will of God. And it means that it doesn't matter where you work, where you go to school, what you do for a living, what your social status is, where your house is. God is doing something in that place. And the thing he's doing is he's doing whatever he can to turn people's hearts back to him. 2 Corinthians says we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors here on earth. So you want to know the will of God for your life? You're Christ's ambassador. You're Christ's ambassador. We're saying to the world, be reconciled to God. So instead of, oh, what is the will of God for my life? Now I can wake up tomorrow and go, look, I'm going to work regardless of whether I think it's God's will or not. 
How many of you, if you suddenly realise, if you're unsure tomorrow morning and you're questioning, you're just not going to go to work? You're going to ring up your boss and go, look, I'm going to be late. I can't tell you what time I'll be in. It's up to God, really. I just know I'll get there when he gives me an assurance that I'm in his will. No, you're going to get up and go anyway. So if you're going to be there anyway, why don't you stop worrying about whether it's his will and why don't you just go, well, I'm here anyway. What's your will in this place and how can I make myself available to be a part of that? See the difference? All of a sudden, everything you do has incredible eternal potential and God wants to work in you and through you and do something amazing because his heart is so much for the world. It is so much for people that don't know him that that's why he's not here yet. That's why he hasn't come yet. Because he's going, I'm, I can't come yet. There are too many people that don't know. There are too many people that haven't had a, a great gospel witness where I'm confident enough to go, you've had your chance. Maybe nobody has gone to work and gone, God, what's your will in this place? How can I fit into that? It doesn't mean that you've got to run around telling everybody, Jesus died for your sins, you're going to hell if you don't repent doesn't mean that let your light so shine among men do your business with integrity be an honorable person value the the fingerprint of god on every person there regardless of whether they push your buttons let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven give them a chance Give them a chance to see the reality of God through your life. Give them a chance to maybe hear about God through your lips if the opportunity should open itself. Here's the thing. I believe that when I go through my day saying, God, you've got a will today because history is yours. It started before I got here. It'll end after I leave. And everything in between, you're in control of, not me. I am not the center of the universe. God, you are. And I know that you love the world. Therefore, I'm very confident that you want to do something today. Wherever I'm going to be, you're going to want to do something. And so I want to say, how do I, how does my life, my gifts, my talents, my skills, how does my being today fit into the will of God? Can you, are you picking up the difference? It's not me at the center. It's God. It's not me in the middle. It's not Malcolm either. It's God. In the middle. See, I just threw that in there then. I've never seen the show, but I've seen the ads. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. See, I think one of the greatest hindrances to the Western church in particular moving forward is this obsession with the will of God for my life. And we've been taught that if you miss it, you're... Here's, here's what I believe. If you are in the wrong job, let's say you're working at a place and you don't know is it the right place or whatever. If it's that bad, And it's that wrong for you to be there. If you open yourself up and go, well, God, I'm here anyway. How can I fit into your will for this place today? Don't you trust that your father loves you enough and is big enough to get you out of that, to move you on, to to not have you wondering, but he will answer your question. He'll make it clear to you. Don't you think that God can do that sort of stuff? You know, sometimes I feel like we, we live as if we've got God in the palm of our hand. Yet The Bible says he's got us. Palm of his. He's God, I'm not. Have I only got faith when I'm feeling a goosebump or I'm hearing a word or something? Or do I actually have faith that says it doesn't matter whether I can't see you, God, you see me all the time? It doesn't matter whether my eyes are closed, yours are never closed. Do we have that kind of faith? I want to throw a challenge at you this week. For the next seven days, 
I want you to wake up each morning. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to not think about whether I'm in the will of God. I want you to live the next seven days as if you are smack bang in the middle of God's will. That means wake up in the morning and I want you to say, I'm in the will of God. Now, God, how can I be used today to fulfill your will? Just do it. I dare you. I double dare you. I triple dare you. I challenge you for seven days. If you're the sort of person that's constantly asking, wondering, lay those things aside and just wake up each day and say, God, how do I fit into your will today in my workplace, in my family? Do it. Just try it for seven days. I want to close with this. Acts chapter 8. Go with me to Acts chapter 8. Stephen has been martyred. Stood up and just preached the word of God. He's been killed for his faith. Just after he's killed, here's what goes on. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Okay? So if, if by this stage of church history you're starting to think, oh, the 12 apostles are superstars, just in case you're thinking that, they're the superstars. Now, they might not have been the superstars before. They were just Southern Galilean hillbillies. Now they're superstars. Well, if that's what you're thinking, whatever, then notice the verse. They stayed, everyone else scattered. So the superstars stayed. It was the non-superstars, the average, ordinary, everyday person like you and me that scattered. Keep going. Uh, look. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men, women, prison. So here's the thing. The church is scattered. Stephen is martyred. Everybody runs. Saul then gets permission to go from house to house and to find anyone that associates with what was back then called the way. This movement we now call Christianity. Anyone that's associated with that could be legally taken away, caged up, killed, and so he goes about doing his job. This sort of stuff still... It's hard for us to picture that in the West, but this stuff still happens in nations of the world today. That's what I mean. Don't ever take for granted Sunday morning when you get out of bed and you come. Do not take it for granted, the freedom that we have. We have amazing religious freedoms here that a lot of places don't have. So Saul's running around doing all this and these guys scatter. Let me ask you a question. Do you think any of them went, oh, what was that about? God, you told me to be a blacksmith. And I just built up my blacksmith business and I'm blacksmithing away and I'm like the second highest blacksmith in town and now I've just had to scatter and I've left it all and it's worth nothing. What was that about? God, I, I, you, you told me to get into property and I did and I had four or five little nooks and crannies in the walls and, and houses and stuff and my property business was going well and then one guy gets killed and now I'm running and I've got nothing but the clothes on my back. Lord, you told me to send my child to that best school and we saved the money and we sent them to the... And then because of this thing now, I've got my child and we're running barefoot to the next town. And that education is gone. What's the will of God now? What's the point of the will of God? Do you think any of them would have stopped and gone, well, the will of God's been taken from me now. What's the will of God now? I don't see that. Because the very next verse, a couple more verses, therefore those who... Therefore, those who are scattered went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word. Okay. Now, let me just throw a thought at you. If you've just had everything stripped away from you, your livelihood taken away, 
the will of God, whatever it is that you thought you were smack bang in the middle of. Your church is gone, your business is gone, everything like that. And you've run to another town. Why would your first response be to go and preach the word? I mean, this word you're preaching has just cost you everything. Could it potentially be? Because these guys didn't live with a mentality of, what's the will of God for my life? Could it possibly be that they always lived right from the start because Jesus taught them, how does my life fit into the will of God? And so when persecution comes and we're scattered, I don't really care about all this stuff. Now I'm going to run to the next village. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the same thing I did when I was back in Jerusalem. Okay, God, here we are now. Might not be ideal circumstances, but here I am. Now how does my life fit into your will in this place? Preach the word. Shine a light. Tell people the reality of Jesus. Keep going. Because one day, everything here is going to disappear anyway. One day, everything you've acquired, everything you've achieved, the will of God that you... History is his story. It's not mine. Yeah, it'd be great to die and be remembered. It'd be great to, to when I pass on, to have people remember and go, oh, I did great things for the Lord. It'd be great. But what would be greater is to get to the other end and know that my life was spent, invested 100% into whatever he wanted. Because I'm aware that he's greater than me and I'm aware that he wants to do something in my church. I'm aware that he wants to do something in my community. I'm aware he wants to do something at the supermarket when I go shopping. I'm aware he wants to do something at school when I go there on Monday. I'm aware he wants to do something in my office. I'm aware he wants to do something in my business. I'm aware he wants to do something in my university campus. It doesn't really matter about my will. God, what's your will? You're in charge and how can I fit into that? So can I challenge you this week, next seven days, I want you to do that. I want you to actually get out of bed and you can do it robotically if you want. I don't care, but I, it's, I want you to wake up in the morning and I challenge you to say this. It's, it's not about my will. I want you to just say to yourself, today I'm going to set my feet on the floor and I'm in the will of God. Tell yourself, I'm in the will of God. And because I'm in the will of God, and it, it doesn't matter about it, but I just want you to say that so that you can eliminate that question, that nagging all day. Am I in the, every time something wrong goes, how many of us go, oh, I must be out of the will of God? If I was in the will of God, it wouldn't be this hard. Well, I don't know. I reckon what we just read was pretty difficult and they were in the will of God. Okay? Wouldn't be, did anyone ever hear that? Oh, if it was in the will of God, it wouldn't be so hard. Someone forgot to tell Jesus. Someone forgot to tell Moses. Someone forgot to tell Joseph. Someone forgot to tell everybody. It's not about my will. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that, you know what, human history is revolving around your will and if you don't find your will, human history will be destroyed forever. So you better get it right. You better get it right. It's God. He's in control. He's in charge. So wake up in the morning. Just tell yourself, straight away, I'm in the will of God. And now what I want you to do is pray and say, Father, how does my life fit into your will today? Do it. Seven days, I challenge you. Seven days, how does my life fit into your will? Because that's how I believe the early church took a hold of planet Earth. How does my life fit into your will? 17 young men laid aside their own agendas and put on the black and gold jersey and said, not my will be done, but yours. And they got together and they said, how do we fit into the one will? How do we all go in the one direction and they want a premiership? And that's why we're here today. Not because they want a premiership, but because that's what the church does. Father, I want to thank you for this morning, Lord. I want to thank you for your word. God, I just pray for each person that's sitting here, Lord. There are, I'm sure that there are people here 
And Father, maybe they struggle with this concept of the will of God. Lord, I pray from now on as they go back to the Bible, as they open up the pages and they read the Bible, I pray that you would supernaturally open their eyes, let them understand that they are reading a divine history. God, let them understand, Father, that they are, uh, are, Lord, reading a story from beginning to end that you are writing, that you are creating, and that, Father, we are not the centre of the universe. Father, if I make a mistake, it will not throw the spiritual equilibrium out. God, you will still win. But, Father, I'm so blessed and humbled that in the course of human history, you choose to use feeble, weak people like us. So, Father, for the next seven days, Lord, as people ask this question, I pray that you would supernaturally meet them where they're at. You would supernaturally use them in the place where they are, in their schools, their universities, God, in their workplace, in their businesses. Use them to make a difference, Father. You told us to go into all the world, God. You didn't tell all the world to come to us. So, Father, I pray this week, use us. God, each person in this room, I pray that we would have an opportunity to tell somebody about the goodness of God who does not yet understand and know that. And Father, we ask that in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. 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 God bless. Uh, that was nice. Yeah, I don't know. You, that was a bit of yeah, nice bit of noise. That's it. We're done. Kids Church is still going next door. Feel free to hang around. There's more coffee and biscuits and stuff there. But uh, bless you guys. And uh, I look forward to next week. If you get any stories and God does something amazing, I want you to tell me. All right? I want you to tell me and I can put my thumbs up and go, see, told you so. Made me feel good. Bless you guys.